Welcome to Rants and Reason. I am Chuck. I am Karen. I am a liberal. And I am a conservative. And as Abraham Lincoln reminds us, we are not enemies, we are friends. We are friends. And today we're going to combine two things into one. Right, right. We're struggling to keep up with the meme Mondays. So to this time we're going to try something new and we're going to add them as a segment on our regular show if it fits the topic. The next series that we're going to start relates to immigration. We want to address some of the heated issues of the day and then look at immigration as a whole. First, we want to highlight the history of immigration in this country. Then we want to look at historical policy from both sides of the aisle and then finally compare that to the passionate discussions that we have today. The immigration meme that we went with is from Alicia Wolf, and she sends us a lot of great material, and we really appreciate that. This meme shows a bunch of ridiculous-looking redneck-style white people surrounded by Confederate flags. There is a quote attributed to John Kelly that reads, They're not people that would easily assimilate into our modern society. They are overwhelmingly rural people, where sixth-grade education levels are the kind of the norm. They don't integrate well. They don't have useful skills. The top of the meme says, John Kelly was right. He was just talking about the wrong people. This meme is a little different in that we can't just straight up look up facts. It's more about context, so there's really no need to have a hypothesis. So we're going to look up Kelly's comments, and then we're going to look at their sources, which are Jeff Sessions' comments. And this is what we found out. Uh, First of all, I do have a hypothesis, is that the people in that picture would not assimilate well anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably true. But, I mean, we have to just not say that about anybody, you know? I mean, once once you do that, but once you do that, then you're you're becoming just like the people who say that. No, those are people I don't want assimilating around me. I mean, one's got a big Confederate flag on his truck. Fair enough. But, I mean, Callie posted something from a TED talk that was really, really good one time. That was a, it was a girl from, um, the Westboro Baptist church group that changed. She had some people on Twitter really engage her in a thoughtful and kind way. She ended up marrying the person who argued with her on Twitter and it completely changed her mind about everything. And now she goes and changes people. Those are people that you would say you wouldn't want assimilating with you now, but now she's going around changing people's minds. So you just can't say that, you know? I mean, you can, yeah. but you, you know, somebody you, will come along and prove you wrong. You're much more hopeful and optimistic than I am. I know, which is ironic <laughs> since I'm the conservative. Well, there's just so many people I'm just tired of. You know, I'm know. just tired of them. I know. And you're tired of John Kelly, too. So I'm tired of Kelly. I'm tired of his boss. I didn't even get I to know. go on a rant. I'm, you know what? I know. Can I just say I'm so tired of Trump? I know. That guy makes me so tired. <laughs> so, now, the first thing we did was look up John Kelly's actual quote in context and the whole transcript of the interview. Here's a question that was posed to him. Are you in favor of this new move announced by the attorney general early this week that if you cross the border illegally, even if you're a mother with your children, we are going to arrest you. We're going to prosecute you. We're going to send your kids to a juvenile shelter. And here is how Kelly answered. The name of the game to a large degree, and that should have been cut out because it made no sense. He rethought what he said. He said, (laughs) We just posted the transcripts. Don't blame us. Yeah, we played. This is verbatim. So let me step back and tell you that the vast majority of the people that move illegally into the United States are not bad people, they're not criminals, they're not MS 13. Some of them are not. (laughs) I think Kelly has problems with interviews. That's why I don't let him get run free. Um, But what he meant to say is, I think some of them are, obviously, but most of them are not. But Kelly's not always clear when he gets interviewed. So he said some. Understandably so. Oh, could you imagine? A guy's blood pressure is probably. Yeah, he's actually probably bleeds out of his ears every day. I'd hate to be that guy. (laughs) He's, you know what he says every morning when he wakes up? I'm so tired of I'm that so guy. I'm so tired of that guy. <laughs> exactly. Okay, I'm sorry. But here's what he says. Some of them are not. But they're also not people that would easily assimilate into the United States, into our modern society. 
they're overwhelmingly rural people in the countries they come from. Fourth, fifth, sixth grade educations are kind of the norm. They don't speak English. Obviously, that's a big thing. It's not really a big thing because I'm from Ohio and Kentucky's just south of us. Most of those people don't speak English. <laughs> but that that was me. That was not a part of this transcript. Um, they don't I integrate well. to Kentuckians. Kentuckians? <laughs> yeah. Kentuckians? Kentuckians? You, you, anyway. I mean, as soon as you cross a river, you can't understand what they're saying. I, it's not me. It's a fact. It's. I just know, okay, I don't want to offend anybody from Kentucky. In fact, I really love Kentucky. However, however, the last time I went to Kentucky, okay, so I don't eat pork or bacon or anything like that. It's kind of like my Jewish thing. And when I, I went I to kind Kentucky- of, Hold on, if, hold on. Yes. I don't think that's your Jewish thing. <laughs> I think it's a <laughs> Jewish thing. <laughs> it's a Jewish thing. Yes. Anyway- if you tell them no bacon on something, they just look at you like you're crazy in Kentucky. I mean, bacon was like salt. It was like, but but you want bacon on that? No, no, I really don't. Yeah, you know, you want bacon on that salad. You want bacon on that soup. You want, no, no, I, I really don't. I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> they just didn't know how to handle that. Bless their hearts. They, it's okay. They do not. Um, so he goes on to say they don't integrate well. They don't have skills. They're not bad people. But they're coming here for a reason, and I sympathize with the reason. But laws are laws. But a big name of the game is deterrence. Now, we lead to Sessions and his zero-tolerance policy. Right, because that's really what K Kelly was being asked about, was this particular policy and what Sessions said at the border. So I feel like the question posed to Kelly was a bit loaded, but it's still a relevant question considering the recent comments that were made by Sessions. So what Sessions said was, Last month, I put in place a zero-tolerance policy for illegal entries on our southwest border referred by the Department of Homeland Security. Today, the Department of Homeland Security is partnering with us and will begin a new initiative that will result in referring 100% of illegal Southwest border crossings to the Department of Justice for prosecution. And the Department of Justice will take up as many of those cases as humanly possible until we get to 100%. If you cross this border unlawfully, then we will prosecute you. It's that simple. If you smuggle illegal aliens across our border, then we will prosecute you. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you, and that child will be separated from you as required by law. Is it is it just me, or does it sound like Sessions has watched Taken one too many times? <laughs> if you cross the border unlawfully, I will find you. If you smuggle illegal aliens across our border, we will kill you. We will find if you, you. If you don't like that, then don't smuggle children over our border. If you make false statements to an immigration officer or commit fraud in our system to obtain an immigration benefit, that is a felony and we will put you in jail. If you help others do so, that's a felony too. Okay, so we're going to have to delve more into these particular issues in a future episode of a you know, the series that we're doing. However, my issue here that is as harsh as this sounds, really the whole zero policy stuff that they're enforcing is not new policy. It's reinforcement of immigration code that is already on the books. Truthfully, I think many in the current administration are utilizing tough talk as a means of deterrent because border arrests actually went down in a huge way in 2017. So I don't really think that they're wanting to enact these new policies as much as they are wanting to scare people from coming to the border. I, I really think that's what the tough talk is about. That's what their hope is. And like we've talked about before, I actually think people who are conservative tend to be more idealistic about things. So they think that this will work. So they don't have to do the mean thing they say they're going to do. I, I, I haven't seen a conservative in a long time, so. I don't know what they think. I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't know what to say about that. I, I mean, I don't know the conservatives even exist anymore. I, I, I'm, 
Oh, I see. You know that I'm a classic. You're a classic conservative. conservative. Like it's like finding a purple squirrel. I mean, the conservatives have become Trumpians. That's what they become. No, no, we have not. There are still some of us out there. There are. I'm sorry. (sighs) The Republicans, too many of them have become Trumpians. Yes. Yes, but a lot of conservatives didn't re- agree with a lot of the Republican stuff anyway. Well, so. and I'm getting off topic here, but you know, as a liberal, okay. you like to have an adversary, as right? Conservatives, and a you, worthy adversary. Well, I mean, you work against each other, and that friction creates things, right? Conservatives need liberals. Liberals need conservatives. Exactly. Uh, this new group, I don't even know what they are. I know. I don't know. I know. And it's it's really it's really disturbing. And, and, it's and really I'm gonna scary. say this about I'm going off topic again, but <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm really sick of is the Republican you know, we talk about this country as a, you know, the founding fathers and what a great thing they did and they created this beautiful system of checks and balances. But you know, mm-hmm. they're not doing that. Congress and the Senate are not being checks consulted no well, they're not they're not they're being not, checked they're not be consulted by the administration either but they're not doing so anything to too. stop that and they could they're just yeah. going along i mean they're just going along and presidential power is just expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding right that's the thing that i find the most disturbing is that the presidential power is just it's become so bloated that it's taking away the whole point of the checks and balances system. Right. So I find that incredibly disturbing. It's just, it's like, we want a king. We want a king. You right. know, I, I don't know why we're going back to that mentality. Just if he does it my way, then it's good. I, I don't understand it. I really don't. But to go back to this particular episode, because <laughs> we could talk about that all okay. day. And we do a lot of times. But um, so... The whole zero policy thing is not new, but the way they are enforcing it to the degree that they're enforcing it, there's actually going to be a lot of problems because of it that we just we're not prepared to deal with what that means. But overall, we rate Kelly's actual quote true. But this meme did cherry pick it a bit because he didn't just say overall that every migrant was this terrible person that was worthless. That that really wasn't what he, what he said. He just he made his point very, very badly. But which he tends really to do he when he's being interviewed. I mean, that's well, that's I, kind I, of a nature of Kelly's. And that's one of the reasons they don't let him do interviews a lot, because he right. he tends to say exactly what's on his mind. Which is great, but he does not always say it very clearly. Right. So. Right. Or in a way. And I'm not being critical of Kelly. Palatable. I mean, I, you know, not saying that, but I mean, that's just the truth. He's kind of, he's, he's a lot like Joe Biden. He's a very right. smart yeah, guy. No, you just true. never really know what's going to come out of his mouth. Right. It's very, very true. Okay. Well, the memes dissection brings up discussions that are centered around the migrant children, which we've heard a lot about lately. And all of those memes and all of the discussion about that began circulating shortly after Sessions' tough talk on the border. And I know this because we were crafting a meme Monday based on um, this particular meme and Sessions' comments right when the migrant children memes started coming going around and then when we had to delve into that it sort of held everything back and when we started looking more into it we just discovered that they were two totally different things so many of the images that are on the memes of kids behind fences a lot of people have already admitted that those are debunked those images are actually out of date and they were manipulated to fit the story if you didn't know those are images from i believe 2014 under obama's administration and and it was completely taken out of context and here are the facts that are beginning to emerge regarding separation of families at the border and keep in mind these are two distinct stories they're There are the missing migrant children is one particular issue, 
and family separation due to zero tolerance policy. Those are two different stories, and they have different factors, and they have different policy issues. Right, and the missing migrant children, um, when we're talking about it, I, I believe it was the Washington Post that broke the story, mm-hmm. and, and then everybody, then everybody picked, picked, up picked up on it. Because of the emotional appeal Right, of it. so you right. have that story of the 1,400 missing children, and then you have another issue with family separation under Sessions policy. Right. But those 1,400 missing would have happened long before Sessions created that policy. So it was not – and there's, they're just so different. We're going to get into that. And according to Homeland Security, family separation is not an official policy yet. But Right. They are talking about it, but it's not an official policy. Right. Yet. And this new zero tolerance policy that was implemented in session speech is causing a new problem of family separation. For example, while parents are being held awaiting hearings, children are being detained. So that is causing right. family separation. Sometimes they're put with other right. family member sponsors, but... Um, but these are not the same kids that we're talking about as missing migrant children in the story. It's a separate right. issue. Mm-hmm. Now, here's how the missing migrant children thing came about, and these are things you need to know. The New Yorker reported that in a recent Senate hearing on the issue, Stephen Wagner, an HHS official, said at the end of 2017, the government had tried to follow up with about 7,000 families of sponsored children, but could not reach nearly 1,500 of them. Now, the important thing to note in this is the next blurb. There are similar numbers from past years before the new Trump policies were put into place. So in other words, this is nothing new. It was a convenient story to amplify the danger of the zero tolerance policy. Right. I personally think that they took the numbers from this particular report because they are shocking to think that 1,500 kids were lost in the system. And I mean, there's so much more to it than that. But and it actually after you take out runaways, ones that were um, definitely reported to be runaways and things of that nature, it was down to 773. But still, I mean, that's a horrifying number. And I think that um, it made a very good narrative. It was a a good number to put with the narrative of a no-tolerance policy. And I really think that that's why those stories were repeated together and why there's so much confusion surrounding it. Right, because there are stories coming out that appear to be very legitimate now with people getting detained and right. and getting separated from their children and then having a hard time finding their children. I mean, that's actually happening. Right. But that is right. not but on these the 1,400 this, kids. Exactly. And on the heels of this, it's very, very, very confusing. Right. When you read one story and then you hear the other and you think it's all the same thing. Oh, it must be true. Remember, when we, when we did the media episode, they use numbers. The media uses numbers to get people's attention. They needed a number to get attention to get attention to a policy they think may be damaging because those numbers aren't shocking enough. And so that's what I think is happening here. Right. And what, and, and I guess that there's a difference here and, and one missing child is too many. Right. But right. there's a difference between missing and lost. And right. what we're exactly. talking about are with the 1400, we're talking about, Migrant children who were unaccompanied minors who showed up at the border. They didn't have identified. They didn't have identification papers. They were almost all teenagers and teenagers Mm -hmm. from countries where being a teenager looks very different than here. Right. So they know how to disappear. Right. Better than a teenager. Well, and being undocumented, they were put with families and sponsor families and they that supposedly knew them or was connected to them. Right. This was not foster care. Right. And they they tried to call them. Yeah. Right. They tried to call them and That's didn't get an answer. Means. And as mm-hmm. I said, if they would have been if had these kids had student loans, you could have bet they would have been found, <laughs> you know. But now the Office of Refugee Resettlement was has very specific, clear and transparent guidelines for care of unaccompanied minors. Right. And that office took charge of unaccompanied minors at the border in 2004. Right. So it's not the Department of Children and Families that's taking care of these kids. It's the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Right. So. And anyone's 
free to see these procedures at any time. It's hard to see how changing these procedures would make much of a difference. It's not a situation right. where there isn't a structure in place. It's it's very complicated with the multifaceted thing system, and it's not an ideal structure, but it's more effective than we've had in the past. And it's kind of difficult to see where the process can be streamlined more than it is now. Right. And we're going to post that in our references. And I, I would encourage people if they haven't, if you have a very strong opinion about this and you haven't looked up the Office of Refugee Resettlement, they're very, very clear on what they do with unaccompanied minors. Right. And they tell you the process in a very clear way. When they have to send them to group homes, it's because of different violent tendencies. I mean, there are different things that, that they look at to put kids in different places. And after reading through it, I have to say, as someone who is pretty familiar with the foster care system, I, I, I don't, it's better. It's much, much better than the foster care system, what they're looking at. And I honestly think there's very little you could do to make it better um, than it is. I mean, it's something that's going to have problems, but it they really did try to figure out the best ways to do things for these kids. And you have to so. understand that many of them are older and they don't want to be found. So right. they, mm -hmm. if you're undocumented and they put you with someone for a short time, it's not really in your interest a lot of times to answer the phone. And right. say, because true. you might get tossed out at any time. You don't know. Right. Right. And also, I mean, these kids are coming from some countries where there's a major fight or flight kind of thing. And they don't trust the government. They come from places where the government hurts them. And they're not going to give information freely because they don't trust anyone. Right. And, so, and just to be clear, what we're talking about are is the story of the 1400 missing children not right. the we're not saying that we agree with sessions policy or what's going to happen there right. is going everything's going to be fine that's not it it's that this right. 1400 missing children thing was extremely extremely misleading mhm mm yes it was well, the zero tolerance policy, that has a whole different set of repercussions, and especially when it comes to family separations. And this is where we believe that outrage should really be directed. And we're going to be examining it further in the last part of our series, but we wanted to make sure that we recognized and acknowledged the difference between the two separate issues, since the media is often portraying them as the same when they are definitely not. So... That tells us a bit about the current immigration conversation, but in order to have a truly clear understanding of the scope of the issue and the validity or lack thereof of proposed solutions, it is important to do a short examination of the history of immigration in America. And why don't you read me a sonnet, Karen? <laughs> Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. This is popularly known as the Statue of Liberty poem, New Colossus. Its famous last lines have become part of American history. The United States has always been a country of immigrants, but that does not always equate to America having a long tradition of welcoming those immigrants. In fact, this country has often more than not treated immigrants with open discrimination and even violent hostility. Really, today's debates on immigration are just as old as America herself. And though the roots of most Americans lie in other lands, there is among them a streak of xenophobia that can be broad. Chinese and Irish immigrants were the targets of nativist hostility in the 19th century as were Eastern European Jews and Southern Italians in the early 20th century. Japanese Americans were confined to detention camps in World War II. Now, the welcome mat is not out for Mexicans, Latinos, and Muslims. Uh, you wrote all that, Chuck, and that was beautiful. You did a beautiful job. Uh, I'm like Keats, you know. 
<laughs> the last couple of paragraphs were just were just gorgeous, oh. and and you did that. So I just want to acknowledge that oh. because it's usually me. But that <laughs> it's was, usually that was you. <laughs> I got a head start on this today. So now some of <laughs> let's talk about some of the first people that came here. Some of the first people that came here, are people I probably would not have liked that much because. They came here to practice their faith, and I would have probably liked them, but they would have made me go to church, and back in those days in 1620s, it was, I mean, they didn't have donuts and stuff at church. But anyway, in 1620, a group of roughly 100 people, later known as the Pilgrims, if you knew your history, if you paid attention in sixth grade history class, you would know this. Like fourth grade, third grade. Well, I was I in mean. the slow classes, so I, I did it in sixth <laughs> grade. So. Now, these were the pilgrims. They fled religious persecution in Europe and arrived at present-day Plymouth, Massachusetts, where they established a colony. And then later on, they had to throw out the witches, right? It's a witch. It's a witch. Right? It's a that witch. Was Salem, I, my, I don't know, but they came from the Puritans. <laughs> But now they were soon followed by a larger group seeking religious freedom. And this was a wild, wild ragtag bunch known as the Puritans, <laughs> who established the Massachusetts Bay Colony. By some estimates, 20,000 Puritans migrated to the region between 1630 and 1640. And that. Gotta get rid of those Puritans. That is when they came up with the first church festival. <laughs> they had to raise money oh my goodness okay so now we have a group of immigrants who did not choose to be immigrants they arrived against their will and this was unfortunately the slaves they arrived during the colonial period and they were black slaves from west africa the earliest records of slavery in America include a group of approximately 20 Africans who were forced to indentured servitude in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. But by 1680, there were some 7,000 African slaves in the American colonies, a number that ballooned to 700,000 by 1790, according to some estimates. Congress outlawed the importation of slaves to the United States as of 1808, but the practice continued. The U.S. Civil War from 1861 to 1865 resulted in the emancipation of approximately 4 million slaves. And then we have the Europeans from 1790 to 1820. In the six years since the United States won the War of Independence, America was becoming, in Thomas Paine's words, oh. he's your favorite, right? Yes. Oh, these are the times that try men's souls. <laughs> he loves some Thomas Paine. The asylum for the persecuted lovers of civil and religious liberty from every part of Europe. And now we at you, we are at your people. My people. Chuck. My people, they came over. Another major wave of immigration occurred from 1815 to 1865. The majority of these newcomers hailed from Northern and Western Europe. Okay, I know you want to do your Irish accent. Yes, so but you I'm, need to just I'm go staying for it. professional. Approximately no, one third came it. from Ireland, which experienced a massive famine in the 19th century. In the 1840s, almost half of American immigrants were from Ireland alone, Come typically on. impoverished. These Irish immigrants settled near the point of arrival in cities along the East Coast. Between 1820 and 1930, some 4.5 million Irish migrated to the United States, making us the luckiest country in the world. <laughs> Although many new immigrants came in pursuit of a dream, nearly all of the Irish immigrants from the 1840s and 1850s came to escape a nightmare. Devastating famine back home. As one immigrant recalled, I saw the crop. I smelt the fearful stench. The death sign of each field of potatoes. The luxuriant stalks soon withered. The leaves decayed. The great hunger would leave 1.5 million dead. And just as many would flee to America. Okay, okay. Because they were Irish, are we totally sure that maybe it just wasn't one dead potato in a field that he smelled and he's like, the great famine is upon us. I mean, like, I, I, knowing you, you tend to be just the slightest bit dramatic about some things. So I just, I'm just wondering... <laughs> 
you know. It was the great <laughs> hunger. <you> <laughs> My tummy's rumbling a little bit, so it's the great hunger. Okay. I can't do it as well as you can. It's very sad. Hmm. Well, You've never been as hungry as I have, girl. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it is. That's what it is. The Irish weren't the only newcomers. Rapid population growth, changes in land distribution, and industrialization had stripped many European peasants and artisans of their livelihoods. Departing from Liverpool and Hamburg... They came in through the major eastern ports and New Orleans. Chinese immigrants began to arrive in the 1850s, entering through San Francisco. As in the past, the immigrants of this period were welcome neighbors while the economy was strong. During the Civil War, both the Union and the Confederate armies relied on their strength, but during hard times, the immigrants were cast out and accused of stealing jobs from American workers. Hmm, this sounds familiar. It does sound familiar, doesn't it? Some of the loudest protests came from the know nothings. That was a real party. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I think maybe they need to come back and get out of my Republican Party. Um, they came from the know nothings, a political party of the 1850s, famous for its anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic leanings. And who was the know nothing president? It was Millard Fillmore, the most boring man in the world. <laughs> Because he didn't know nothing. Maybe he was just so horrible that nobody wrote anything down about him. That could be. Yeah. Well, it was the pro-immigrant voices of this era that would actually be the most influential. The know-nothings did not go down in history. Make that a note, those of us that do not, are not pro-immigration. Make that note in your mind. The no- that is not who we remember. We remember the pro-immigrant voices. The Republican, I'm going to say that again, the Republican platform of 1864 stated, foreign immigration, which in the past has added so much to the wealth, resources, and increase of power to the nation, should be fostered and encouraged. By the 1880s, steam power had shortened the journey to America dramatically, Immigrants poured in from around the world, from the Middle East, the Mediterranean, Southern and Eastern Europe, and down from Canada. Ah, from Canada. See, we need to build, I told you, we need to build a wall up there. Because I'm pretty sure, isn't Canada our enemy now? I I think, I think at this point, Trudeau may build a wall. <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's possible. So, the door was wide open for Europeans. In the 1880s alone, 9% of the total population of Norway... Which comes to 12 people. <laughs> ...immigrated to America. After 1892, nearly all immigrants came in through the newly opened Ellis Island. That's right. And then we're going to get to the Germans. In the 19th century... You missed my pun there, Karen. Nine. 19th century. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. I totally did not appreciate that. I'm sorry. You you break my heart. The United States. That was fantastic. Thank you. In the 19th century, the United States received some 5 million German immigrants. Many of them journeyed to present day Midwest by farms or congregated in such cities as Milwaukee, St. Louis, and the fine, fine town of Cincinnati. And the national census of 2000, more Americans claim German ancestry than any other group. And I'll tell you a quick side note to this. Mm -hmm. Cincinnati has an extremely small Polish population throughout the Midwest and most river cities and meatpacking cities. And Cincinnati was a meatpacking city. You have a huge Polish population. Chicago being one. Mm Mm-hmm. The reason Poles didn't come here and the reason that Jews did not settle in Cincinnati in large numbers was primarily because of the large German population. Okay. The Italians would come and the Irish, of course, you know, because we were escaping the great hunger. We would have stayed anyway. We didn't care about the Germans. We were just looking for, you know, a scrap of food. <laughs> but but no, that's, that's really true is that the, yeah. because we were German – so German, mm-hmm. the Poles avoided us and moved up to Chicago and other places. Well, I can kind of understand why in the mid-1920s, 30s, why the Jews would not congregate around Germans. Also, <laughs> that would make sense. 
Um, so Jews from Eastern Europe fleeing religious persecution also arrived in large numbers. Over 2 million entered the United States between 1880 and 1920. And then we have the Chinese. During the mid-1800s, a significant number of Asian immigrants settled in the United States, lured by news of the California gold rush. How come we always use the word lured whenever we're talking about the Chinese? Because like remember we, when we talked the about opium, the opium dens, we lured said lured. into the opium dens, yeah. <laughs> It's just interesting. Okay. Some 25,000 Chinese had migrated there by the early 1850s. Well, you know, when we were doing research, it was it was weird. The number of articles we read that basically they made the assumption because the men were, you know, was, there were so many men coming over that the Chinese women that were coming over were prostitutes. Mm. I mean, that was they, they just made that assumption about them, which mm -hmm. I thought was rather yeah. unfair. It is. One of the first significant pieces of federal legislation aimed at restricting immigrations, and this was a very subtle, subtle piece of legislation. This was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Now, who, uh, now, who do you think that was aimed at? <laughs> I can't imagine. You know, they've gotten a lot better at wording things in a lot more of a shady way. At least, I know. At least back then, you knew exactly how horrible it was. Well, you know, I doing another podcast, I'm always on Canada. And uh, yeah. I think still we should have today, we need a Canadian Exclusion Act. <laughs> I'm tired of them. See, and you have so many Canadian listeners that love you so much. You know what? I, I, Canada is just such a great country, but I always rip on them in the other one. But, I, know, I know. But it's truly a great country. And I, I don't know. I don't know why we have such a problem with Canada all of a sudden. I don't <laughs> I know, know. It's kind of crazy. I, well, I keep waiting like for troops to amass along the border <laughs> or something. I'm like, what are we doing? This would be like the friendliest war ever. <laughs> I know. Okay. While this horrible, horrible exclusion act banned Chinese laborers from coming to America, Californians had agitated for the new law, blaming the Chinese who were willing to work for less for a decline in wages. Once the U.S. declared war against the Axis powers, German and Italian residents were detained. But for the Japanese, the policies were much more extreme. Both resident and American-born citizens of Japanese descent were interned. But the, these you know, were citizens. I know. These I know. were citizens. But Congress would officially apologize for the Japanese internment in 1988. Eight. 44 years later. You know, I know people We're like sorry. that. If you're waiting I mean, for an apology, it's going to come in like 44 years. <laughs> oh, my bad. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that, that might have been on me. Was, but yeah. My bad. Mm. Okay. Well, after the war, the refugee crisis continued and President Truman responded with, I urged the Congress to turn its attention to this world problem in an effort to find ways whereby we can fulfill our responsibilities to these thousands of homeless and suffering refugees of all faiths. I told you that I was born in the same hospital that President Truman died in, right? Like 14 times. <laughs> I mean, can you learn a card trick or something for the love of God? I <laughs> I don't know, you know, I mean, when you're born in Kansas City, you got to have something because back then the Royals didn't help you much. So. Yeah. Did you? Okay. Do you know what the moon was like the day? Where, I mean, if, I, if that's what you got to hang your hat on, I, go ahead. It's not much, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Congress answered Truman with the Displaced Persons Act of 1948, which offered hundreds of thousands of people entry into the United States, but millions were still left to seek refuge elsewhere. Between and, 56, yes? Oh, I was just going to say, it should be noted that, you know, throughout our history, like in 39 and 40, we limited the number of Jews that we were allowing into oh the country. Oh my goodness, yes, yeah. So, I mean, we, we have this thing of, you know, give us your whatever... No, don't. But not really. <laughs> don't, no, no. We're, but only if they can fight for us. Only if we can put them on the front lines of war, then it's cool. But yeah. other than that, just as long as you don't take our jobs or our yeah. welfare, it's, it's, good. it's good. I kind of like how, um, how immigration <laughs> dropped during the Civil War. I was like, yeah, no, I'm going to wait this one out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, 
just going to stay back here for a little bit. Well, between 1956 and 57, the U.S. admitted 38,000 Hungarians, and these were refugees from a failed uprising against the Soviets. These were among the first of the Cold War refugees. Stop laughing. <laughs> just like, I'm imagining these Hungarians like... Uh, he just tried to uh, overthrow the Soviets. <laughs> Didn't work. <laughs> yeah, is, there, is there a room at the end? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, in, in this era, for the first time in U.S. history, more women than men entered the country. They were reuniting with their families, joining their GI husbands, and taking part in the post-war economic boom. By the early 1950s, calls for immigration reform were growing quite louder. In 1965, Lyndon Jumbo Jumbo Johnson signed the Hart-Seller Act into law. Gone was the quota system favoring Western Europe, replaced by one offering hope to immigrants from all continents. The face of America was truly about to change. Well, just the face that changed with London Johnson. <laughs> Would you let that go? <laughs> you are just, you have a thing with Johnson. Now the, now the effects, <laughs> the effects of the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965. Have you noticed that like in almost everything we do, Johnson comes up? <laughs> So, anyway, the effects of the Immigration and Naturalization <laughs> Act of 1965 were immediate and significant. That was pretty good. Like, like by Johnson. <laughs> Within five years, Asian immigration would more than quadruple. That means it went up four times, Karen. Okay, um, this trend also was like, like... okay, sorry. <laughs> this, this trend was magnified even further by the surge in <laughs> refugees from the war in Southeast Asia. Through the 80s and 90s, illegal immigration was a constant topic of political debate. In 1986, the government gave amnesty, oh, that's an ugly word now, to more than 3 million immigrants through the Immigration Reform Act. You know who that was that did that? Yes, I do. 1986, that would have been Ronald Reagan. It would be. Mm -hmm. You know, the bastion of conservatism. Yeah. And he Mm -hmm. gave people amnesty. Mm Mm-hmm. You can't even, you can't even say that word out loud if you're oh, conservative. Oh, I can. Now. Amnesty. <laughs> yeah, well, they're going to kick you out. Mm. But during the recession years of the early 90s, we wanted to send them back. There was a resurgence of anti-immigrant feeling. Now, still, immigration rates through the 1990s soared. In 1994, the INS developed the first detailed national estimates of un- unauthorized immigrant population residing in the United States. These estimates indicated that this population was 3.4 million in October 1992. Remember that number? 3.4 million in October of 92. In 2007, rates showed that they had soared even higher. An estimated 11.8 million unauthorized immigrants were living in the United States in January 2007. Yeah. And... In 2000, you know, 92, 2000, there were 8.5 million. Wow. Between 2000 and 2007, the unauthorized population increased 3.3 million. So that's, I mean, that's huge. Right. Um, Nearly 4.2 million, 35% of the total 11.8 million unauthorized residents in 2007 had entered in 2000 or later and an estimated 7 million 60% were from Mexico. Right. So, I mean, there. So it, look at that number, 3.4 and 92 mm-hmm. and 12 million. And, but really it's, I mean, 7 million and it was all for economic reasons and, right. and you had the drug cartels and violence and, we're going to get into why people are coming here in such large numbers in, right. in other episodes. Right. But, I mean, when you look at those numbers, it kind of helps you understand why some people feel the unease that they feel. They shouldn't. They shouldn't act on it. But 
it, I mean, th- that's kind of a large influx. And just like we talked about earlier, through history, whenever new immigrants came, there was some backlash. There was some people that were oh, like, yeah. I don't know about this. This is a little too much for me. And I, I really think that that's the backdrop for what we're seeing now. <clears throat> and really, it's nothing new. What it what is has been before. Every time we see an influx, we see a backlash, and then we see an adjustment. The fact is that according to Pew, in 1910, 14.7, almost 15% of the population was foreign-born. So in 1910, 15% of the United States was foreign-born. As of 2013, 13% of the population is foreign born. So everyone, that is less. I may not be good at math, but you aren't. that is you less. You are not good at math. <laughs> the trend that people are concerned about, that everything is going up so much, it's really not a thing. The range, the date range with the lowest rates of those that are foreign born were between 1950 and 1970. Okay, that's when they were at the lowest rates and that's when they were about like 4.7 to yeah. 5.2. Almost everybody was American born that was in America right. then. Okay, this tells us several things, okay? Um I think that that really shows that there was a lot of second generation of immigrants. And they assimilated into a full American identity. They did not hold on to, I do not see myself as an American. I see myself as a blah, blah, blah. I think they assimilated into an American identity. And that's why they identified as American and their their children were Americans. And here's the thing when you're talking about assimilation, you hear very, there are not many hyphenated Irish Americans. (laughs) <laughs> right you know because right. we're just kind of like sneaking off like no, i have very controversial feelings on assimilation i think that that that's really where we need to put our focus but i think we need to define what that means we have to make sure that does not have a racist definition or a racist connotation to it um the next thing that it shows is that many that grew up during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, they weren't really exposed to the amount of foreign-born people and their cultures that we have now, right? So while this does not excuse really atrocious behavior, it can account for part of the fear and the mistrust of new cultures. If you grew up during that time period and you didn't see very many people and you see more now, you're going to naturally think, oh, the world has changed so much. You know, had you been born in 1910, it would look very similar, you know, um, the, the cultures of people. But we know what we know. We're shaped by our experiences. And I, I think that that has a lot to do with it. Well, and I think now we, when we were running across that and we saw the one chart um, mm-hmm. of people who people who are the most against immigration, who are the most fervently against immigration, mm-hmm. are the people who are impacted the least by it. Right. Right. It's pretty crazy. It's 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 it, that kind of goes into our unlikely friends. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly true. So the other thing that we noticed through this was that when rates were low, policies were enacted that brought the rates higher. We're going to be talking about that more next week. But when the rates began to get higher of foreign born cultures, policies would start to get enacted that would bring the rates lower. So basically what this means is that, again, we're dealing with nothing new. It's just really important that we walk in kindness and in compassion and that we don't allow our fear to cause us to support policy that will end up tilting the balance towards the type of horrific, horrific acts of discrimination that America keeps seeking repentance for today. We, we just don't want that. We don't want things like the internment. We don't want to treat people like that. We don't want to open up the door to the type of racism that causes the atrocities like the Holocaust. And it's really important that we maintain that balance. So next week, we're going to examine the history of policy. That sounds super exciting, doesn't it? (laughs) And how we got to where we are. And we're going to examine what has worked and what hasn't. Well, until then. And it's really interesting because 
what we're seeing in policy and what we've seen throughout mm-hmm. that is very similar to the war on drugs. Right, that it is. That pendulum swinging back and forth. It is. And it has a lot to do. I mean, the war on drugs had a lot to do with immigration. Right. And we're seeing, you know, the same thing here. So when you understand that, when you really understand that there's nothing new under the sun and there's no reason to get all upset about everything, we just need to work to maintain the balance. You realize, okay, I can learn from this and we can move forward and craft decent policy. So until we until then. That is all we have to say about that yes we would like to thank everyone who takes the time to listen to us we really 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 appreciate it you can find us on podbean stitcher itunes and there's another one what was it i just asked you about overcast overcast we also would really appreciate you taking the time to drop us a positive review on any of those platforms and also our page, not our Facebook group, but our page. That's Ransom Reason Podcast. Yes, please. We have a pretty active Facebook group if you'd like to join. There's no We'd fee. Love that. Um, you can find us. <laughs> I don't on- know. You have to pay the fee of dealing with all of us. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> We're a pretty great bunch. You can find us on Facebook at Rants and Reason Podcast Facebook group. Uh, We would like to thank our moderators for all they do to help maintain the discourse there. And while there is no fee, if you would like to support the page, you can find us on Patreon. If you'd like to be a Patreon supporter. Yes. You can find us at Patreon at Rants and Reason. We appreciate that. And we're going to be adding a lot of interesting Patreon stuff here pretty soon some videos and some fun rants and things like that so we would really love to get a little bit more patreon supporters so that we can kind of get some activities going in that regard we just we really appreciate all of you so much and if you want to find us on twitter you can find us on twitter at rants reason yes and you can we appreciate all the support um the word of mouth recommendations we really appreciate mm-hmm. the shares on social media, the iTunes reviews. And as we said, our Patreon supporters, yes. and that is they're having the uh, uh, meetup down in Austin right now, Jennifer Riker Smith. It would be lovely yes. to be down there. And speaking of um, word of mouth recommendations, Jennifer manages several bars and she plays our podcasts. At the bars. Oh, does she? <laughs> She's like, everybody's going to get along and you're going <laughs> to listen to this podcast. If these two people so. can get along, you, <laughs> you guys, guys can too. You two drunks too can. Yeah. Yeah. Anon, we really appreciate you. Uh, one of the great, great, truly great guys on the internet, Stephen Potts. Um, yes. Ben Fenton, I just saw there was uh, an article posted today about the 27 best podcasts out there. Mm-hmm. And Ben Fitton was number two on that list. So oh, that's pretty amazing. They Walk Among Us podcast. another podcast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy Collins from Podcasts We Listen To. Timmy from History Dweebs. Austin. Love you, Timmy. Austin, just a great, great kid. John Payne, oh, really you got to listen to the weekly wrap-up. That's a great He's one. He's so good. I mean, he dude is. was born to do radio and voice work. He was. It's He's great. Tony Carr, my my Irish friend uh, with a podcast, Lipstick Heels and Western Zeal. Yeah, Tony's the best. She's I love her dearly. And um, Michelle John, she knows how I feel about her. Oh, me too. Mm. Yeah. And Alicia Wolf <laughs> for her social media support. So. Yes. And, yes. and Karen, tell me a story about, you know how I love these stories of unlikely friends. So tell me one, Karen. Regale me. <laughs> I will. But if we're talking about unlikely friends, this is just a friend. You forgot Rudy, the wonder oh, dog. Oh, Rudy. The world's most dangerous, dangerous canine. canine. Yes, Rudy yes. actually was out on a boat last weekend. Oh. And he saw. On a boat. He was out on a boat. He saw a sea otter having some trouble, or river otter. I'm sorry, river otter. And yeah, I was going to say, was he in Cincinnati? Yeah, well, that might be kind of awkward. You don't know that if we have a sea or not. Anyway, well, there's Rudy for Cincinnati. Rudy saw a, a river <laughs> otter in trouble. Leapt out of the boat. Doggy paddled oh. over to the river otter, helped mm-hmm. it to shore, and oh. reunited it with his mother. Oh, you know what? Yes. Rudy and 
the river otter were unlikely friends. <laughs> they were. They were. So you should like unlikely friends so much more. Well, Rudy well, ate it- the river otter after that. <laughs> Well, it is my personal belief that when people meet one-on-one, all their preconceived notions tend to go right out the window, and then friendships are built on the things that make us human rather than than what separates us into tribes. So instead of marching and yelling at each other, if we would infiltrate each other's churches and stores and playgroups and civic organizations and really, really get to know one another things could actually start to change. We really know our community and, and I, all the people that make it up. And I want to say the marching has to stop. I mean, it Well, really I mean, has this story stop. is about marching, but it's marching for the right reason. Okay, if, you're, if you are marching, don't march in a pair of Sperry shoes. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I tried okay. to be fashionable. I put on a pair of Sperry's. My feet are covered in blisters. No, oh, so you're going to make this beautiful story about you. I'm sorry about I do have blisters. But that's because you're Irish. <laughs> oh, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> a recent raid in Morristown, Tennessee, proved my belief in a very beautiful way. Morristown, Tennessee is a town with a population of almost 30,000 residents. 77% are white. Only 13% of the town identify as Democrat. There was an ice raid recently in Morristown. One morning in April, federal immigration agents swept into a meatpacking plant in this northeastern Tennessee manufacturing town, launching one of the biggest workplace raids since President Trump took office with a pledge to crack down on illegal immigration. Dozens of panicked workers fled in every direction, some wedging themselves between beef carcasses or crouching under bloody butcher tables. About 100 workers, including at least one American citizen, were rounded up. Every Latino employee at the plant turned out, save a man who had hidden in a freezer. The day Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents raided the southeastern provision plant outside the city and sent dozens of workers to out-of-state detention centers was the day people in Morristown began to ask questions that many hadn't thought of before. They asked questions of the federal government, to the police, to their church leaders, to each other, to themselves. And I have a question. Yes? How come ICE couldn't find a guy in a freezer? You know what? I'm trying to like, this is this emotional thing. I'm building it up. And you have to make it about you. I'm not. I'm just saying. Wouldn't you think ICE would already be in the freezer? Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. You're proud of that one, aren't you? That was a good one. That was a good one. Donations of food, clothing, and toys for families of the workers streamed in at such a volume there was a traffic jam to get into the parking lot of a church. Professors at the college extended a speaking invitation to a young man whose brother and uncle were detained in the raid. School teachers cried as they tried to comfort students whose parents were suddenly gone. There was standing room only at a prayer vigil that drew over a thousand people to a school gym. St. Patrick Catholic Church. Their parish center was converted into a crisis response center. All day, people arrived with food, clothing, toys, and supplies for the affected families. At one point, six trucks waited to unload donations. Volunteered, volunteers who showed up by the dozens received color-coded tags, yellow for teachers, white for lawyers, and pink for general helpers who prepared meals in the kitchen, packed grocery bags, and performed other tasks. Bleary-eyed immigrants packed the main room. In smaller rooms, teachers entertained children with stories while their parents received legal services. Members of other churches, including the town's Baptist church, turned up to help, some bearing gift cards and checks, some bearing the important message of what really mattered most. Pastor of Hillcrest Baptist said, As a minister of the gospel, my concern is for affected families, and especially these innocent children. These people are my neighbors, and they live in my community. On Thursday, a week after the raid, about 300 people took to Morristown's downtown streets in the evening to draw attention to the plight of the families. Some people, like Colin Loring and his partner Margaret Durgan, drove for an hour to participate. 
We are here to support our immigrant neighbors. The system needs to be fixed, said Mr. Loring, who is retired from the United States Department of Agriculture. Mrs. Durkin arrived with a $540 check to help the immigrants. And this this is right in the bastion of liberalism in Morristown, <laughs> Tennessee. Right. 13% of the town was identified as Democrat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A, a big mass of 13%. Yeah. Well, but before setting out on their march, a nun led the marchers who wore white and clutched white flowers and they were in prayer. And they said, we love Morristown. We are here to send a message of love and unity. And they chanted this before heading down Main Street. Along the way, a driver shouted an expletive at the crowd from inside his brown truck, but then the cowards sped off. They marched anyway, for their town, for their neighbors, for their country. Undocumented immigrants and the town that rose up to fight for them. If they can do it, we can too. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Goodbye.